Father, Jesus tells us in this parable that there are four types of soil that we can be. The parable that was just read. And Father, you know the state of our hearts and our lives and our minds right now. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would do a, a wonderful work in us and, and, and make us good soil. Father, make us good soil so that as your word comes into our hearts, as we listen with an honest heart, an open heart, that your word will come into the soil of our lives and bear much fruit for your glory. Father, make us good soil by your Holy Spirit. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <laughs> so... Um, I don't know, uh, it was I think a year or two ago, there was a, a picture uh, that made, I think it was in almost all of the newspapers, uh, it showed a Russian Orthodox priest, a bishop actually, in all of his spectacular liturgical finery, and it showed him blessing uh, missiles that were going to be loaded on the planes, and the planes were going to go to Syria, and they were going to uh, shoot the missiles uh, down at the people in Syria. I don't know how many of you saw that picture, but um, if you're at all like me, it just seemed so wrong. (laughs) It just seemed so wrong, right? Um, Somebody, uh, um, you know, very, very clearly trumpeting that they're a follower of Jesus, or they claim to be a follower of Jesus, to 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 pronounce a blessing on on missiles that that are going to rain down upon upon people in Syria. Um, You know, and the fact of the matter is that. there's lots of odd things about blessings. Um, you know, this, so that one might be a bad one. This one might be something that you like, although we, we could talk about it a little bit. Uh, I almost brought a picture in of, uh, uh, that a lot of churches, mainly Anglican churches, on St. Francis of the Assisi feast day, they, they have a, a service where people can bring animals. They can bring like dogs and cats and horses and camels, if you happen to have a camel, I suppose. And there's a blessing of the animals. Well, what on earth's going on with that, you know? And uh, in a couple of weeks' time, because after this uh, Sunday, God willing, I'm going to begin this series of sermons on Genesis chapter 1 to 11. It's going to require that we talk a little bit about what's going on with transsexual issues and, and same-sex marriages, and what's going on with blessing at marriages and blessing at same-sex marriages. And like, what is, what is going on with this? Like, are Christians just really confused about blessing? And, and here's another thing. I, when I was speaking at Parliament Hill on Friday... Um, just, I, I asked the room, I don't know, there were about 15 people present. I just asked them, uh, those of you, how many of you still have churches where the minister pronounces a benediction at some point in time during the service? And, and of course, there was an Anglican there, and it's part of the Anglican liturgy to do that, and in Roman Catholic liturgy, it's part. But for those who were in non, those non-churches, like basically most of the churches, they, they realized, Pentecostal, Baptist, uh, they don't say blessings anymore in, in church services. There's no benediction or pronouncing of a blessing over the congregation. So, like, what's going on with churches, with Christians, with how they understand blessing? And, and the reason this is actually not just an academic thing, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, um, is because, you know, deeply, many, many people in our culture, um, they have a sense that there should be something like a blessing or a blessing way, or the idea of being blessed or being able to live in blessing is something very, very, very attractive to us. Even if we have a very hazy sense of what it means, there's just this sense that there should be something like a blessing. 
And depending on how you are in your culture, if you're an optimistic type, maybe you believe that there is this spirituality or uh, you know, this method will lead to blessing. Uh, if you're a more pessimistic type, you'll say, you know, it's just like believing in you know, the Tooth Fairy or Santa Claus, only it's for adults. And, and the reality is that there's just death and destruction and, and people being mean and you just grab the little tiny bit of happiness you can. But, well, what's going on with blessing? So the Bible text that we, that we read just a few minutes ago is one of the greatest texts on blessing and benedictions in the entire Bible. So I really would, uh, it would be great if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 uh, and verses 5 to 14. In fact, Andrew, uh, while you're turning, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 to 14, uh, Andrew, while the, they're turning that, could you just put up the, this is verse 14. And um, it's verse 14, and uh, it's how the Second Corinthians ends. And in a lot of church services, it's... Uh, in fact, in morning prayer, when we do morning prayer, that's how the service ends, with us speaking this uh, over each other. Uh, why don't we just say it out loud right now? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's say it again. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The second Corinthians ends with this very powerful benediction or blessing, and uh, we're going to try to unpack that. But the whole passage that we read, it, it sort of begins in an odd way, doesn't it? If you remember, you might not remember how I, I began the reading, but it begins with this idea of examining yourself. And the text just before this has a lot of things about command to do things, so is the Bible text, like, you know, a lot of people, when they talk to me for any length of time about the Christian faith, like outsiders who are trying to understand things about the Christian faith, they, they tell me they're often very confused uh, by the Christian faith, that there seems to be all these rules that they have, and it seems as if we're fixated on certain things, and then at the same time, it seems to be that there's this grace thing and forgiveness of sins. And it's very hard for them to, to figure out from the outside how it is that all these commands, examine yourself, uh, be of the same mind, and then this, these commands of blessing being given. Like, is it is it just some type of deal that if you do all of these things that God will do this? Or what's going on? And it's not just people outside the church. That Many people who have been in churches for a long time have a hard time understanding how commands and blessings go together. Because in the world, the way the world seems to work is if you do the things you're supposed to do, then good things will happen, you know, or better things will happen. That if you do all of the studying, if you take all the notes, then maybe you'll get the A. It's unlikely that you'll get such a good mark if you do no studying and no work or whatever, unless it's a math course and you're a math genius, but that's a separate category, you know. But so what's going on here? Well, let's let's look up at verse 5 which is where the text begins. And all of this is really important for us to understanding what blessing is and how commands and blessings all fit together. So it says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to to meet the test? Now, isn't that a very, very odd way to try to start to, to lead up to a final benediction or blessing. Like, you know, a lot of people from outside Christian circles, they believe that uh, the Christian faith is a bit of a con game, 
that you, you promise, you know, it's like those people who, um, you know, they move things around, they put a, a pea or a, you know, something or a marble or something in a cup and they move it around really, really quick and then you have to try to pick what it is and there's always this sleight of hand and they promise these things but then they're really getting you to do this and just sort of a way to get your money out of you and, and get your time and and it, it allows people to stay powerful while you just end up really trying to figure out these shifting rules. And so that's what's going on here. Well, um, those of you who were here last week, you might remember what just went on a little bit before. So let's look, we're going to look at verse 5 again, but could you go back up to verse 3? Uh, and it's sort of finishing at the end of a sentence. It says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. But here's the important part, the second part of verse 3. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. And um, so just before we read the, the, verse 4, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Okay, well, what's, what, why is that so important to understand what's going on with this? Examine yourself. Well, you might remember last week we talked a little bit how that part in verse 3, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. I mean, I don't know. That's true of us right here. And in the eyes of the world, we, they wouldn't look at us and say that we're very, very powerful. Um, but what the text is talking about here is not worldly power. In fact, um, Paul is writing this to a group of people. Most of them were pagans who had become Christians. A few of them were Jewish who had become Christians. It's only about five or six years, uh, give or take, after Christianity had entered Europe. And uh, Christianity enters Europe not with armies like Islam entered Europe, but Christianity enters Europe by a, a group of four wandering teachers, one of whom was Paul, who tell people about Jesus. And, and so in, in Corinth, Christianity definitely isn't powerful. They don't hold important positions of prestige. The culture isn't shaped to try to direct people to the Christian faith. So what does it mean when he says, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God. Well, Paul explains this, that there's this mighty thing that God does in the person of his Son, that God, the Son of God, sets aside his glory and divine prerogatives and splendor and comes and lives amongst us, and he comes and he, he lives amongst us all with the purpose of ultimately dying upon the cross as, uh, as the means by which God is going to make right human beings with himself who put their faith and trust in him. And it's the complete opposite way of how the world understands how things should be made right, because generally speaking, the way we in the world think that things should be made right is to give things more power. Like, if we want to make poverty right, well, we feel like we have to give maybe governments more power or something like that, or we want to make the economy right. We, we just naturally feel that there should be somebody or some group that gets more power. But God, he, he understands that at the very, very center of the human problem is this desire for more and more power. That the whole way that the human race went wrong with God was because that human beings wanted to be like God. And by being like God, they would have 
power. And so in this very, 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 very powerful way, not just as an object lesson, but to set things right, God, the Son of God, becomes weak. He empties himself. And he becomes weak. He's born. He's he's a tiny fertilized cell that has to lodge on the womb of of his that that God creates this out of nothing, and he and it has to be lodged on the womb of the wall of the womb of Mary. And he's completely and utterly weak, and he lives a a humble life, but a life where he does nothing wrong. And at the end of the day, he pursues weakness even still by allowing himself to go and to be put on falsely accused and falsely condemned and put on the cross and uh, and mocked and rejected by the people and by the, the 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 greatest civilization that the world had ever seen he's rejected by the greatest civilization and the people who knew his ways and he dies upon the cross and as he dies upon the cross it looks from the eyes of the world whether it's from the eyes of religion or from the eyes of spirituality or from the, the, the eyes, eyes of culture, or the eyes of philosophy, or of economic power, or of military power, or of artistic and aesthetic power, from any sense, it looks now as if his life has been a complete and utter failure. But Jesus describes himself as the Lamb of God. He accepts the description that he is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. He doesn't say, I am the mutant superhero who will take away the sins of the world. But he accepts this description of him, depiction of him as the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And the Lamb of God is slain. And when we see Jesus dying upon the cross in complete and utter weakness, and it looks as if it's been a complete failure, this in fact was God's plan to provide a way and a power to make human beings right with himself when they put their faith and trust in what God does in the person of his son. Because uh, just as in, um, in sacrifices, whether they were pagan or Jewish, there's this idea that there's going to be a, an animal that dies in your place and there's some type of a putting of a hand in a sense or some type of transference or acceptance that this will be in substitute for me and in a sense, the punishment or the doom that I deserve will now fall on, on this helpless animal where I go free. Jesus depicts himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And because he is God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and even though he has stripped himself not only of divine privileges, but as he lies upon the cross, as he is hung upon the cross, he's even stripped of his clothing. He is completely stripped, but he never stops being God. And because of that, that when we, when he dies, it's not just him handling the sin and all that, all my desire for power, all, all of the things that bend me out of shape because I have rejected God. Not just for me, but he can stand for every human being who puts their faith and trust in him. And so what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians, what he's reminding them is his letter becomes, and it's so important that he reminds them of this just before he starts to tell them to examine themselves and and to be of the same mind and to do this and to do that. He reminds them that God's power has come upon these ordinary human beings when they have put their faith and trust in Jesus. In his first letter to Corinth, he, he tells them that, you know, not many of you are very wise and not many of you are very rich and not many of you are very powerful. 
But God takes ordinary people like you and me, jars of clay like you and me, some people terribly far from the kingdom. If you go and if you read First Corinthians, the letter before Second Corinthians, it's it's very very clear. There's, I mean, there's you know prostitutes, and it's I mean, there's just like all the whole rank of society, from some people who are quite rich to some people who'd be at the very, very bottom, that they have all put their faith and trust in Jesus, and they're now this one people, that God's power, it's when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, it's when we hear this message and accept that it's God doing this, it's not just my declaration that now I'm going to live a new life, it's me putting my hands out, whether literally or figuratively. And as I put my hands out, whether literally or figuratively, to Jesus, and it touches him, it's as if now my sin, my life, my past, my present, my future is now on him. And as he has died upon the cross, he's died for me. And it's not just my declaration that it's not like another New Year's resolution, which is all about my power to try to accomplish my goals because I want to be slimmer or I want to be more muscular or I want to be richer or I want to look younger or I want to look older or whatever the heck it is. It's all about our power. But when we put our hands out to Jesus in weakness, God's power comes into us to make us his. And that's why Paul can say here, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. On Friday, I was trying to think of an analogy to speak on Parliament Hill, because I I had the, the great privilege to speak on Parliament Hill on Friday to some of the staffers. And so I gave them a bit of an early version of this sermon. And I tried to say, you know, the whole Christian life begins with weakness because it's a type of surrender. And the analogy I gave them is imagine if Justin Trudeau came into Rona Ambrose's office in full sight of people seeing him going into her office. And he goes into his off, her office and sits down in front of her and says, you know, Rona, on this particular policy, the conservative party is completely right. Like, in fact, I'd like you to write all of the legislation for me and I'll move it because you're right. Well, can you imagine that happening? And, and, and I don't, I'm not picking on Trudeau. It could be the other way around. Imagine what would happen if Rona Ambrose went into Trudeau's office and said, Justin, you're completely right. Could, could you just write this down? Because I'm going to com- completely, the Conservative Party is going to change all of its policies as, as you just write it down, what needs to work, well, you can, it's not going to happen either, right? But the Christian life begins in a very, very, very real sense by us surrendering to Jesus. By being weak before him. And part of not only is that how it begins, but part of the growth in our Christian life in a very, very ironic way is increasingly surrendering to Jesus. I mean, once we surrender to Jesus and he takes us, then we're his forever. You see, just just look down again here. Look at like just listen to the whole flow of how it now goes. Look at verse 3 again, the second part. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. That's the resurrection. 
For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Andrew, if you could put up the first point, please. A Christian, you know, I tried to figure out how to do this in inclusive language. It just sucked. So I've written it twice um, because it, it, you have to do plurals and it just it didn't make any sense. It, it didn't make sense. A Christian is a person who has let Jesus Christ come into him and be his Savior and Lord forever. A Christian is a person who has let Jesus Christ come into her and be her Savior and Lord forever. <laughs> That's what Paul is talking about here. And you see, this completely and utterly changes the whole notion of examination. We're going to talk about this a little bit more towards the end as we look again at this whole idea of blessing. But when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, it's not just that we're made right with God, but Jesus Christ, the Savior and the Lord of the universe, actually comes and lives and dwells within you doesn't matter how messed up your life has been or how powerful your life has been. doesn't matter if you've lived your life in complete and utter rebellion against God or if you've been superficially obedient to God by living a superficially moral life or maybe even a pretty moral life. None of these things matter. None of these things actually put Jesus in us. That when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, Jesus Christ actually comes and lives in you and me. And um, so part of the examination of ourselves is just to think about the fact that Jesus Christ lives in us. And, um, you know, the language of love, I, I saw this past week, I think it was, it was actually, maybe it was even on Valentine's Day. Uh, I don't know if you, if you get Netflix, there's a very, very interesting movie called Calvary. It's an Irish film. And um, it's a very, very powerful film, actually. And uh, it's all about a... Um, it opens with... I'm not giving a spoiler alert, because the first... If you, if you watch the movie, by the way, you can't miss the first minute, because if you miss the first minute of the film, nothing in the film will make any sense to you. And in the first minute, there's a priest sitting in the confession. The, 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 this, this, thing, this little door slides open. There's a person there. And uh, there's a very dramatic thing that the man says to the priest... And then at the end of the, the thing, the, the man says to the priest that he's going to kill the priest in a week's time. He's going to murder him. And, um, and he's going to murder him because he hasn't been a bad priest. He's a good priest. And he says, I'm giving you a week so you can set your house in order. And the rest of the movie is the week, including him dealing with his daughter and uh, because he was, he's a widower. And after his wife died, he joined the Catholic priesthood. And there's a very, very powerful scene, no spoiler alert here, where his daughter and him who've been, you know, they have things like a lot of parents have with their kids and fathers with daughters and, and, and mothers with their sons and, and fathers with sons, etc. And there's a very, very powerful scene that would resonate with everybody because it's a just, we all understand it at a fundamental level. And, and he says to his daughter that he'll always be here. And then he says, I'll always be here. And he, he puts 
his finger in her, on, on her chest. And then he says, you'll always be here. And he puts it on his own chest. And I, I don't think it matters whether you're a Christian or not. At a very, very human level, we all understand that, don't we? That there's something about the very nature of love between two human beings. That when we, that, that part of the whole thing about love is that you're opening your heart. You're opening the inside of who you are in some small or big way to the other person. Hoping that they will start to, to reciprocate by them opening something in themselves so that something of you starts to come into their life at the level of personality and imagination and emotion and habits and, and right and wrong. And, and it just, it starts, you start to get into their lives and they start to get into your lives. And, and we all understand that. And that's why you see the Bible is very, very, Sometimes it confuses Christians because there's language of Jesus coming to live in us and, and language of us coming to live in Christ. But that's exactly how it works for human beings, isn't it? Like the language of the Bible is very wise. And what the text is saying here is that it's Jesus actually comes because of what he's done for us on the cross and his resurrection, which vindicates that he's from God, and when we put our faith and trust in him, in a sense, when we reach out to him and he reaches down to us and, and we connect, and as we connect all of my sin and shame and rebellion and lust for power and narcissism and the messes, everything is transferred to him. He has dealt with it in his death upon the cross and there's not only that transference, but there's an entering in that Jesus enters in and I enter into him. That's why it uses the double language. So mindful of all of this, let's listen to the rest of, the, of this passage going up to, uh, to verse 14. And verse 14 intensifies this image and then helps us to understand how commands and blessing go together. Listen to it again, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? He's being a bit jovial here in the Greek. He's, um, he's, he's not saying this because he thinks they're going to fail. And, and by the way, what he's really doing here, another thing, is not only all the way through the letter, they've been judging him. And what he's doing right here is he's saying the same type of thing as what Jesus says is you need to see the log in your own eye before you see the speck in in the other person's eye. And you've been spending all your time examining and testing me or other people. You need to examine yourself. It's just good wisdom. In verse 6, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not go wrong, do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test. In other words, he's not concerned about how they view him, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Once again, he doesn't care whether he's failed. He wants them to do right. Why? For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. You could do a whole sermon on that verse, couldn't you? For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Verse 9, For we are, we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. And the word there that's translated as restoration in, in the original language, it could also be tran- translated as mending. It's, 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 it's the fixing of a broken bone. That's what the language is. It's the language of medicine. Somebody breaks their bone, and they, they, you put it in a splint, and, and, and 
because you, you desire and then you know you rest it and everything so that the bone will be mended. It will be restored. And that's what Paul's desire has been, is that there seems to have been a break in his rela- their relationship with him, and there seems to be a worrisome break in the relationship with Jesus, and all he wants is for the bone to be restored. He just wants their restoration. He wants them to be mended. That's what he prays for. Verse 10, For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me. Why has the Lord given him authority? For building up and not for tearing down, for growing things, not for sending missiles down just to completely obliterate everything, but to grow things. That's the fundamental goal, for health. Finally, brothers and sisters, verse 11, rejoice. Five commands, statico commands. Rejoice, it's a present tense. In other words, it's as much as you can, choose joy. Too many of us in our lives, um, we snatch unhappiness from the the jaws of joy. (laughs) We have an opportunity to be happy, and then rather than being happy, we think of the terrible thing the person said to us, or we we think about, uh, you know, the wrong thing that we've done, or we think about some other type of thing, and and, and the, the, the chance of joy is there, and we turn from joy. He says, be in joy. He says, um, aim for restoration. That should always be your goal, to see things that have been broken or fractured, to see them mended. That should be your goal. You should be known as healers, as wounded healers. That's, that's how you should try to understand who you are, to be healers. To live in, uh, to agree with one another, uh, sorry, comfort one another. And another way of translating it is, is that you encourage uh, each other. To agree with one another, which really there in the original language, the idea isn't that you agree with each other in terms of, you know, about Trump or something like that, but that, that the truths of the gospel and the truths of God are the things that you both think upon. And, and, and then, and, 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 and live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. And here it's very important. It isn't saying, um, okay, if, if you're in joy, and if you aim for restoration, and if you comfort one another, and if you think about the right things, and if you live in peace, then the God of love and peace will be with you. He's saying that as you're doing this, in the original language, it's not as clear here in the English, but in the original language, as you do this, remember, what do you need to remember? That the God of love and peace is with you. He has been with you. He is with you. He will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, it's a bit of an aside. I have to watch my time. I haven't looked at my time in a while. Okay. Uh, we, we, um, did you notice here, here, Andrew, put up the next thing, please. Uh, the Trinity is inextricably connected to the gospel. Just, it's one of those little small things, you know, you're talking to a Jehovah Witness or something like that. Uh, the Jehovah Witnesses try to rewrite the Bible to get out things of the Trinity, but they can't do it because it's in there so often. But look at verse 11. The God, singular, of love and peace will be with you. And then, in verse 14, the three persons of the Trinity. <laughs> The three persons of the Trinity. And we're going to just look at this verse 14 and then how it affects our lives. But here's the, the first thing. If you could put it up, Andrew. A biblical blessing is a proclamation of the truth and a prayer for that truth to be real in our lived experience. 
Now, I'm not just saying here it's a proclamation that 2 plus 2 equals 4, or that Ottawa is the capital of Canada. It's not. But, but I want, want you to understand is that when, when Paul, when God causes this to be written, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's a proclamation of truth, just as true as 2 plus 2 equals 4, or that Ottawa is the capital of, uh, of Canada. It's true that Jesus is the Lord, that he is the Christ. It's true that grace comes from him. It's true that God exists. It's true that the Holy Spirit exists and that there's a type of fellowship or koinonia. It's true. It's a proclamation of truth over the, over the person or over the congregation. But at the same time that it's a proclamation, a declaration of the truth, it's also, in a sense, a prayer, a longing prayer that that truth will be what you live your life out of and what shapes your day, what shapes your memories, what shapes your imagination, what shapes your longing, your business deals, your relationship with your husband or your wife or your best friend. It's, 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 it's a prayer that that will shape you, that that truth will shape you. The next point, Andrew, all about blessings. A God wants me to know what is real so that I will live in the real world as his. God wants me to know what is real, so that I will live in the real world as his. You see, prayer is so weak, unless God really exists. If God doesn't exist, prayer is such a colossal waste of time. But if there is a God who does exist, and because you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, and he's now not just God, but your Father in heaven, then to talk to him about your day, and about your fears, and about your shames, and your need for his wisdom and guidance in planning, then that's living in the real world. And people who live never talking to God aren't living in the real world if God really exists. And so in this blessing, God wants me to know what is real so that I will live in the real world as his. And then the final thing, Andrew, if you could put it up. Not the final thing, but for the blessings things. God wants me to pray that you and I will have a growing, walking, knowing of what became unshakably ours when we received the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. God wants us to know that. He wants us to remember it. And you know, I'm using the word walking here in the biblical way that in, in, in both the Old and the New Testament, often when they want to talk about doing your day or how your day works, they use the analogy of walking. It doesn't just mean going out for a walk, but if you think about it, you know, you get up in the morning and you, I don't know, you walk to the bathroom, you walk to the kitchen and you walk to get dressed, you, you walk to get the paper or whatever it is, you know, you, you walk to the bus, you walk to the car, even driving is a type of walking, right? It's if you actually just traced what you do throughout the day and all the things that you have to do. And that's what the, it, this benediction is here at the end of it because God wants me to pray. And if you're writing that down for yourself, then that's you're writing that down for yourself as well. And God wants me to pray that you and I, not just myself, but for us, that we will have a growing, that's why we pronounce benedictions over it. Because on one hand, this is all objectively true, that Jesus Christ doesn't just come to live within us. When we put our faith and trust within him, Jesus isn't a tourist. 
he made us for himself, and when we invite him in, he takes residence for all eternity. And But he wants us to have a growing, walking knowledge in terms of our actual experience of how we do a day, of what became unshakably ours when we received him by faith. That's why it's so important, if you're trying to think of what to pray over a person, pray the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Like, God wrote that for us to pray it. Like, if you don't know what to pray, pray that. You know you're praying what God wants. You can pray this over non-Christians. Why? Because this is what God wants to be true in the life of your non-Christian friend. He, There's not going to be a single person that you ever meet in your life that it is not God's desire and heart that they would accept Jesus as their Savior and Lord. It doesn't matter what they say about how bad they are or how broken they are or how messed up they are or whether or not that God could ever love somebody like them. You can know from the Bible that God does love them and that you can pray this over them, that this would be the thing that starts to shape their life, that they would accept the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit to be with them forever. And and and, and it's just, as you as, as this grips us. Andrew, if you could put up the next point, I know this is going to sound a little bit bold because a lot of Christians are terrible at self-examination and a lot of people who aren't Christians are a billion times better at self-examination. But as we're gripped by the gospel, only the gospel makes real self-examination possible. You see, it's really hard to examine yourself if you feel under accusation if, there, if you think you have to sort of examine what, you know, let's say you have to go and tie, you know, okay, okay, you have to parallel park. And there's a group of people laughing at your attempt. It's so hard to figure out what you're doing wrong, right? Or even if you have to do something like figuring out what you're doing wrong and the people are rooting for you, it's still really hard, right? Like, it's really hard in a relationship to really practice full self-examination because you always have a lingering worry that if that self-examination ever came out and and the other person found out really what was going on within you, they wouldn't want to love you anymore. But you see, as the gospel grips us, as this blessing grips us, then it and, and you see, the other thing about it is religion and spirituality often work to undermine real self-examination because religion and spirituality both work on accomplishing something. But this whole gospel message is not about accomplishing something. It's not about you, you, do, you hope that you get enough good marks in university so that you get make the cutoff so you can go to law school or medical school. It's not like that at all because it's about us surrendering, like Rona Ambrose going into Justin's office. It's, it's about surrendering. And then when God comes in, when Christ comes in, he actually comes in and he lives there. That, you know, the, you, a woman can't be half pregnant. Like she's either pregnant or not. And you can't be a half Christian or a quarter Christian. You might be a Christian who's being choked with thorns. 
You might be a Christian who has very shallow soil, but you, you can't be a half Christian or a quarter Christian because Jesus actually comes and lives within a person who's given their life to Jesus. And here's the powerful thing about the gospel. Jesus isn't a tourist. He's not going to leave. He now lives in you forever. And it, it only as the gospel grips us that we can realize that everything I have ever done in my life and everything I ever will do in my life was known by Jesus when he died upon the cross for me. Things which maybe I, maybe I'll see someday in five years, I'll see something and all of a sudden a memory will be triggered of something terrible that I happened to me or that I did, you know, when I was seven or eight years old or younger. And that will be a complete and utter shock to me. It might be very hard for me to live with, but Jesus knew about that when he died upon the cross and he took me as his own. And it's only when you have the security of the love that we receive in the gospel that this blessing speaks over us, that we start to realize that, you know what? My being accepted by God doesn't depend upon how well I do in this sermon. And my acceptance to God does not depend upon how good I am doing at anything in particular. He's not going to turn his eye away from me. And that type of unbelievable, perfect knowledge security, as, as the gospel grips us, it starts to make self-examination really possible. And it starts to make it even possible to attempt things. Because he's accepted me. He's accepted me in the cross. Andrew, could you put up the final one? I'd like to invite you to stand. If you're here as a guest this morning, uh, what I really want to take, you know, and it, it, you, you would describe yourself as maybe a searcher or a seeker, or uh, maybe you don't know how to describe yourself because maybe you had a, a period of time when you were very, very full of belief, and then you've had a period of time where it seems like you've been very, very far away. And, you know, I would just say, you don't have to try to sort. Like, here's the thing. This blessing's for you. When I said earlier, there's not a single person that you can ever meet that God doesn't want that this blessing to be true in their life when they receive Jesus. He's talking, I'm, I'm talking about you. The Bible's talking about you. It really is. And so this is just a prayer that I've, I've written to try to summarize this whole thing. I'm going to invite you to pray it with me if the Lord has touched your heart. And I just want to say once again, if, if, you, if you, this for some of us can be our conversion prayer knowing that Jesus will come into our lives and be, and, and be our Savior. You know, maybe just just say, Jesus, come in and be my Savior and never let me go and never leave and, and take me. Just, you know, it doesn't have to be fancy theological language, but there's no time better than right now, right now today, to, to cry out to God. And But for all of us, in light of this beautiful text, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, I invite you to pray with me. Loving Heavenly Father, please make us disciples of Jesus gripped by the gospel who have a growing, walking, knowing of what you have unshakably given to all who receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. Help us to then walk in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit to your glory and praise. Amen. Father, I just pray over us all that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen.